0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm your host, D.P. Lyle. Today I want to talk about victimology, or the victims in your crime stories. When we write crime fiction, when we think of crime fiction, when we read it, what are we focused on? Well, predominantly our investigator, whether that's a police officer, a uh, a detective, an international spy, a PI, or the little lady down the street who just likes to solve crimes, we focus on the protagonist, in other words. Secondarily, or in parallel with, we focus on the antagonist. Who did this? Why did they do it? Where did they do it? And how do we find them? How do we solve this case? It's not unlike what the police do. So you look at uh, the investigator and you look at the criminal because when you think about it, uh, crime fiction is a dance between those two and there's a winner and there is a loser. But what about the victim? And actually the victim is very often the clue and the mechanism of solving the crime in the first place. Now, I did a podcast recently on how do you identify um, uh, remains. If you find a body or a skeletal remains, a corpse of some kind that's been dumped somewhere, and you don't know who the person is, how do you even start an investigation? You don't know where to look. You don't know who to talk to. You don't know anything. You've just got a body out in a wooded area, and you're kind of dead in the water. And the cops feel that way too. So identifying the victim is absolutely paramount when you are uh, conducting a homicide investigation. But let's say that you know who the victim is and this person has been murdered. What do you want to know about that person that will help you find the perpetrator? Well, there are many things. First of all, the person, almost invariably, 95% of the time, has a relationship with a killer. It may be a family member, it may be a friend, or a coworker, or someone who goes to the same places at the same times. It may be people that, you know, they, they, they go to the, the same bingo parlor, or the same church, or the same whatever. But the point is, there's usually some relationship between the killer and the victim. People rarely kill people for no reason and randomly. You know, this is one of the things that made serial killers in many instances so hard to track is because they were called stranger murders. In other words, they weren't related in the way that normal uh, 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 perpetrators and victims are. So that made them very difficult in a lot of uh, FBI things like profiling and uh, the National Crime Database and all that were constructed with this in mind how do you find these people but we have a victim in our story and we know who it is well let's talk a little bit about victimology victimology is the study of the victim if you will and so you, you look at the victim and the first thing you do is are they high low or medium risk In other words, what are their odds of becoming a victim in the first place? Now, a low-risk victim is high-risk for the perpetrator because they don't put themselves in dangerous situations and they don't expose themselves to interface with bad people as often. Now, obviously, anything can happen. Random is random, and bad things happen to good people who follow all the rules, etc., etc., But a low-risk victim would be someone who is more or less a homebody. They have a family. They have friends. People know where they are. They know what they're doing all the time. They have a steady job. They go and work at that job. They come home from that job. They don't visit areas that are unfamiliar to them. They aren't involved in criminal activity. They aren't involved with gangs. They aren't involved with drugs and things like that. Uh, In other words, they don't they live a low-risk, kind of vanilla life. And so consequently they don't interface with a lot of bad people very often. What's a high-risk victim? Well obviously this is someone who puts themselves in dicey situations. You know the classic example are are the street walking prostitutes. They're actually out there on the street exposing themselves and hopping into cars with strangers all the time. This is extremely high-risk behavior. People who use drugs, who visit drug dealers, who buy and sell drugs or weapons or something like that, they are around a chemical element, a criminal element, I mean. People who belong to biker gangs and and other kinds of gangs and all that, they obviously are at high risk for homicide. People who have risky behavior, you know, promiscuous lifestyles, people who work at night. People who work the night shift and they maybe go in at 8 o'clock at night and get off at 4 in the morning. Well, you know, as my daddy always said, nothing good happens after midnight. So you're leaving your uh, 7-Eleven job or your service station job at 3 a.m. because you've closed it up now and you're heading home. Well, that puts you out on the street at a time when bad people are roaming around and there's less witnesses and less good people around to help you. So all of these things, make for a high-risk victim. And remember, a high-risk victim is low risk for the perpetrator because the person makes themselves, if you will, readily available. Now, medium risk obviously falls somewhere in between this. So when you analyze the victim of your crime in your crime story, These things need to be considered, and you need to take these into consideration because the police are going to, and your investigator is going to. All right, so let's say that a guy's found, murdered, shot in his car, and the car is in a parking deck. And the parking deck is right next to where his office is. And he's found there at 7.30 in the morning. Okay, what was he doing there? Why was he there at that time in that parking deck in his car? What sort of perpetrator would also be there at that time? What sort of person would know that he would be there at that time, if indeed that's the case? So let's say he's he's there at work. He's got on his coat and tie. He's got his... uh briefcase sitting on the passenger seat he's behind the wheel of the car the keys are still in the ignition Uh, the car has been turned off and he's sitting there and he's shot in the back of the head right through the window okay what about this guy makes him risky nothing he's a guy who's going to work he's there next to his office building he's in a parking deck where he parks every day he's maybe even in his designated parking slot there's nothing out of the ordinary there so that means this being random is still obviously in play, but it also opens the specter that was he targeted. Did someone know that this is when he comes to work, this is where he parks, that the parking deck when he comes in at like 6, 6.30 in the morning because he's one of those early guys, um, knows that there's not going to be any witnesses around. Well, you can see... That opens up a world of who are you going to look at now? coworkers, friends, people who he had conflicts with. But it would be people who knew him and people who knew his habits, most likely. Now, could this be random, just a a drunk, a drug addict walking down the street and sees an opportunity because the guy's got a nice car and he shoots him in the head? But what if there's not a robbery? What if his wallet's still there and his briefcase is still there and he's wearing a Rolex watch and none of that stuff was taken? Well, now you're starting to see how you look at the victim and analyze the victim. Okay, let's take the same guy. Same circumstance. He's in a parking deck. And he's um, shot in the back of the head and he's dead. His briefcase is right there. But it's not his neighborhood. It's not the parking deck next to his office, it's 20 miles away. It's in a seedier part of town. Maybe it's in a place where, you know, there's a lot of uh, prostitution and drugs and gang activity and things like this. That changes things. That changes things. This is probably not someone who planned this, who set him up, if you will, who um, went through all the mechanisms we talked about before to, to to be there at that time and do away with him for some reason, you know, social, financial, love triangle, whatever, Like like in the first scenario. So what's he doing there? Why is he in that part of town? If it's in the morning, why is he there in the morning instead of going to work? If it's at night, what's he doing over there at night instead of at home? These questions have to be answered. Why did he this low-risk victim make himself a high-risk victim well those are the questions that are going to have to be answered and maybe he was visiting a prostitute there maybe he has a girlfriend there maybe he was doing a drug deal and he had a cocaine habit that nobody knew about Uh, maybe he had borrowed money from a loan shark and and didn't pay it back and now he was going to make a down payment on it but Loan sharks aren't big on down payments. They, they, more or less, uh, they, they more or less want all their money and they want it now. Um, so all of these things can come into play. And so you've taken a low-risk victim and you've put him in a high-risk situation. And by analyzing this victim, who he is and why he's doing this and why he's in this location, Because remember, the crux of a crime is there's a perpetrator and a victim and their paths cross at a location and at a time. Why? Why did their paths cross and how did this happen? That's what you have to analyze when you're creating your story. Um, this, This is part of Police 101. This is what they do. They... They look at the victim, they find out who the victim is, they find out who the victim knows, they find out why the victim was in a certain location at a certain time. Well, you're going to have to do that, too, when you write your story. I mean, there's no other way around it, because that's part of police investigation. Okay, so let's go back to the guy sitting in his car, and uh, he's in the parking deck next to his office. And he's got a gunshot wound to the head. Okay. What if the guns found lying in his lap are on the floorboard at his feet? What if this looks like a suicide? Hmm. Is that possible? Now, the police are going to go through all of their mechanisms to determine if suicide's even possible. They'll take the uh, entry wound, exit wound, those kinds of things, look at the logistics involved there, what's the angle, what's the distance of the muzzle, and all this thing, to say it's even possible that this guy did it. Well, if he's sitting in his car and somebody walks up and, and literally just puts the gun to his side of his head and pulls the trigger and then drops the gun in the floorboard right there below him, Uh, then it's possible this could have been a suicide because the angle and the distance of the muzzle to the entry wound would be compatible. And so you couldn't say it wasn't a suicide. So what are the steps you go through to determine that? Well, besides all the physical things I talked about, one of the other things you do is, again, you look at the victim, maybe with a psychological autopsy. Now this means basically just digging into who they are, what they do, how they act, how they react. It's basically looking at them from a forensic point of view as to their psychological makeup. What if this guy has just started a new business adventure that he's all excited about, and that's one of the reasons he comes in early, so he can work harder, get this thing off the ground, because it really has potential to be the thing that he's been working for for the last you know decade or so, and so he's really stoked about this, and maybe it's getting close to time. For, for this thing to come to fruition so he's all excited everybody who knows him says man that's all he can talk about he's just really hyped up about this and his wife says man he's you know he's been working hard he's been focused on all this and this is really you know really cool and in fact he's going to sign all the papers in a couple of days and while that goes on we're going to take a trip to Hawaii we can't wait this is going to change our lives well this is not the kind of guy that's going to commit suicide but what if his business isn't doing well? What if it's failing? What if things are not going well? And the reason he's coming in early is because he's got to work so hard to keep his head above water. And maybe, you know, he's got a wife and kids and responsibilities, and maybe he's just fed up. And maybe some of his friends have sensed that and felt that. Okay, that might favor suicide. Now, it doesn't say that he did. But you look at the victim while you're trying to determine, is this even a homicide in the first case? You know, maybe they write it off as a suicide. Maybe the medical examiner decides this is a suicide. The, all the evidence points that way, including the psychological uh, autopsy, if you will, and the talking to all of the people around him. So this is another aspect of things that you have to look at. So let's look at a whole a whole different case again. Let's say you got a teenage girl. And she's a little rebellious, but overall, she's not She's not bad. Her family, you know, they, they get along okay. Though she and her mother have spites, uh, you know, spats. Why wouldn't she? You know, they always do. Uh, what is it, the old thing that dogs train you for babies and cats train you for teenagers? Well, that's kind of it. So she's kind of a teenager. and She's acting like a teenager. So what does she do? Well, she hangs out with her friends. She um, uh, goes to the mall. Uh, she's very good about checking in and where she is and what she's doing. She will text her mother frequently and say, you know, we're at the mall, we're going to go to a movie here, okay, and then text we're out of the movie, it sucked, we didn't like it, and we're going to get something to eat and I'll be home in an hour. But then she doesn't come home. Her car's found in the parking deck and she's gone, or in the parking lot outside the mall and she's gone. And her friends don't know what happened. We saw her get in her car. She was walking to her car at least. Okay, what happened here? Now, this is a person who is low risk because she doesn't do drugs. She doesn't, you know, is involved in prostitution. She uh, contacts her mother frequently. She goes out with friends. She's in a public place, so to speak, even though mall parking lots are suspect. And that's the point. She did put herself in a bit of a high-risk situation. I mean, nothing that anybody else doesn't do. It's not her fault. But she goes to the mall. She's 11 o'clock at night, 1130, midnight. She leaves and is coming back home. Well, she's in a parking lot at night. That is a bit of a risky behavior, but eh, we all do it. It's not not like being in the wrong part of town and doing the wrong things. So she is a medium-ish risk on that night. So you put all that together. Okay, fine. But what if when the police start investigating and get into all of her social media, they find that on TikTok and you know Facebook and whatever, Instagram, all these others, that she's been communicating with an older guy. She's been communicating through one of these things with someone who has basically been sexting her. And what if they further find out that she didn't meet her friends, that she had texted her friends and said, you know, my mom won't let me out tonight, but I'll see you guys tomorrow. That changes everything. So now maybe she went to the mall where her car was found to hook up with this guy and disappeared. So now she is no longer a medium risk victim. She's a very high risk victim. She has put herself in a circumstance that has led to tragedy. No question about it. This isn't going to end well. Again, this happens all too often. So when you are looking at, and maybe, you know, then her body's found. And so now she's identified and now you know and now you're trying to figure out what happened. So when you do your victim analysis for your stories, you can see how the what, when, where, and how of a murder changes everything. It changes your whole suspect list. It changes how you're going to investigate this case. It changes how your investigator is going to look at things. There's a big difference between this young lady as to whether she did meet her friends and was just having a night out with her buddies, or she lied to them and her parents and hooked up with some bad guy. There's a big difference between the guy sitting in his car next door to his office and is having a great day and a great life and a great future, and a guy who is on the other side of town where bad people are and where he has no business being there, and yet they both end up looking the same. The crime looks the same regardless. So by analyzing the victim, victimology if you will, is, is paramount to you constructing your story. Now, most of this you've probably figured out before you start writing, and most of it you probably feel intuitively as you get into your story and what your plots are and and the characters and all of this. But stop and think about the victim. Think about who they are, what they do, where they go, who their friends are, why they're why they cross paths with the killer at that place and at that time. And really think about all of that. And you may come up with some really interesting ideas for how to make your story richer and deeper. So that's the end of this. Um, Again, it's about victimology. As always, there will be uh, show notes um, that will be on my blog, and there will be a link to that. And you can read more about this. Also, if you pick up either of my books, Forensics for Dummies or How Done It Forensics, this topic is covered there also. So uh, I hope this helps create some ideas in your head for how to spin your yarns, particularly your crime fiction, <laughs> in 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 different areas. And I hope, uh, hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you've learned something. So until next time, this is D.P. Lyle signing off.